welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm Bob Hollison. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, bring the traditions um, forward again. I love the traditions. That's the name of my home group here in Billings, Montana. And uh, the traditions, to me, are what protect the fellowship from guys like Bill W. and me and a few others of us. Um, <clears throat> this one in particular, I really, really hits home for me. And I'm going to start out by reading um, out of the back of the big book. On This is fourth edition on page 562. I'm going to read in the short form. Tradition 2, which just happens to be longer than the long form. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Excuse me, the, the, uh, the long form, which is supposed to be the long form, is actually shorter. And it says, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. And we'll get, we'll cover, um, that last part that was added on for the, uh, for the short form. We'll cover that in a little while. Um, I just, I love this, uh, this, this whole premise of this tradition too, because it's, it, uh, it hands the, it hands AA or whatever fellowship you happen to belong to that follows the, these traditions, it hands the fellowship to the groups. And not to, to um, uh, anybody who sits on a high pedestal and, and tries to run the whole thing. And um, for uh, for me, I know that I had to uh, come to find that out. I didn't. I actually thought that there was a hierarchy. And actually, a few times when I was chosen to serve in a certain position, I thought I was one of those uh, gifted with more brains just because I got elected. And all I was, all I was was to be a servant. Uh, from here we'll just move in real quick into, uh, AA Comes of Age on page 98. Uh, would all those who, um, have read the book or have the book with them, would you raise your hands? Okay, that's what I thought. Um, in this one, in the in the uh, eighty comes of age, which is sounds if you read them both, uh, the eighty comes of age and the twelve and twelve, they'll sound a lot alike because um, Bill used a lot of that out of there. Um, it says here that AA's group conscience on page ninety nine, right at the very top, it says AA's group conscience can be the only ultimate authority in our affairs. And I know whatever fellowship you have to belong to would read the same way. It belongs to the group conscience, and uh, it can be the only ultimate authority in our affairs. Because if it's not the groups, then it's not the will of what the whole fellowship wants and what it's about. 
Um, I know I've been involved in situations where we get together in a room as a committee and we really discuss things as a committee and we think we've really come up with the the absolute answer for something. And when we bring it back out and, and present it to the rest of the assembly, uh, the group, all the groups that's there, we present it to them. They look at us like we've got three heads. They, and then they, they start explaining to us how that doesn't quite work. And then we see it too, if we're not too belligerent. And, uh, then we understand where the group has a lot more vision and, uh, we're just there to do the work for it. Down on uh, page 99, a little farther, uh, about the third paragraph, uh, just above the third paragraph, or no, right on the, the third paragraph, harder still to accept was a now proven fact that the conscience of the group, when properly informed of the facts and issues and principles involved, was often wiser than any leader, self-appointed or not. We slowly realized that the old-timer frequently was faulty in judgment. Because of his position of assumed authority, he was too often influenced by personal prejudices and interests. With all his experience and good works, there was still nothing infallible about him at all. Does this mean that as old-timers our usefulness is over? No. Once we old-timers have surrendered to the group conscience, we are pleasantly surprised to find that the groups, when in deep difficulty, will again turn to us for the kind of guidance that only our longer experience can give. And I know that this has been an absolute fact for me, too. It's in my home group. I've been I've been in that same home group for coming on 29 years now. And sometimes I get to thinking that I know, I know best, but at our group business meetings, uh, we discuss a lot of things, but we make sure that everybody is well-informed before a decision is made. And sometimes... Those people actually uh, disagree with me, and uh, I've had it proven to me that it was it was better the way that they went. And sometimes, in all of the discussion, we all came to a better understanding that was different than any of us wanted. But I think the key thing that I read there is um, that the conscience of the group, when properly informed of the facts and issues and principles involved, was often wiser than any leader self-appointed or not. We just had a recent uh, uh, incident just like that. We were at a we had a business meeting and we were all discussing singleness of purpose and how to chair meetings, and uh, it started getting into a lot of opinions on uh, what should happen, and uh, a lot of the opinions were uninformed. So we chose to back off, take a time out, and uh, bring it back the next month. And in the meantime, uh, the the information where it could be found, what literature could be found in, was pointed out for everybody and printed out so that everybody could study up on it and come back to the next business meeting. At the next business meeting, there were still some opinions, but they were a lot more mellow and and more easily uh, conformed to what the whole group wanted. And it was just amazing to watch the whole thing in action. And I've had the privilege of watching this in action uh, many years at at my home group and at our district and at our area and at the General Service Conference in New York. I got to see this um, happen. Uh, sometimes we called for a, a break and we said the serenity prayer and we would come back and sometimes that wasn't a long enough break. Uh, one time we had to just table everything for the whole night and we all, when we went to our rooms that night, we all prayed about it and the next day when we came back it was settled in, in just no time at all. And that's 
that's where the group, being totally informed and taking the time to make sure that we're informed and talking it out in a reasonable manner, um, really brings forth what is best for the fellowship. On, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've all read the story about when Bill really uh, brought this tradition around uh, himself by doing something that the group that was all staying at his house um, said something about it. It was about 1937, and he was doing some 12-step work, um, and he was uh, at, at Charlie Towns Hospital, and, and he was asked to, uh, if he didn't want to just take a position there and that uh, he could be well paid, and since everybody else seemed to be doing better since they sobered up, there was nothing wrong with it, and uh, boy, Bill just jumped at this. He, you know, he, he thought at first he couldn't, and then he started thinking about it, which is one of my major problems, is thinking. And on page um, 101 in the uh, A Comes of Age, right, the third line up there, it says, he came up with this thought, this voice came to him out of the Bible, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And, uh, boy, he just thought, well, that just makes total sense. That'll, that's what, that makes this thing okay. And when he took it back to the house and he presented this to this group, First, he presented it to Lois, and she gave him a kind of a blank look. And then, when he tried to present it to the whole group that was there, it uh, everybody were jumping up and down and hollering hooray for Bill, which really kind of surprised him. And uh, he pointed out that this was very ethical, that this would work out. And uh, the group pointed out that it was, this was farther down in page 101, it says, sure, it's ethical. But we've, uh, what we've got won't run on ethics only. It has to be better. I said, sure, Charlie's idea is good, but it isn't good enough. This is a matter of life and death, Bill, and nothing but the very best will do. My friends looked at me challenging, challengingly as their spokesman continued. Bill, haven't you often said right here in this meeting that sometimes the good is the enemy of the best? Well, this is a plain case of it. You can't do this thing to us. Thus spoke the group conscience. The group was right, and I was wrong. The voice on the subway was not the voice of God. Here was a true voice welling up out of my friends. I listened, and thank God I obeyed. <clears throat> and then follows a really important part. It says, Three blows, well and truly struck, had fallen on the anvil of, of group experience. They rang in my consciousness. The common welfare, now on page 102, must come first. AA cannot have a class of professional therapist, and God, speaking in the group conscience, is to be our final authority. Clearly implied in these three embryo principles of tradition was a fourth. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And that is that last piece is what was added on to the end of the short form of Tradition 2. And, uh, I, and I really, I really had... I'm amazed at the wisdom of putting that on there because um, we're not senators and we're not uh, trying to log roll stuff for our particular group or whoever we represent. We're there to be a part of the group conscience of the fellowship as a whole. I know that for me, uh, when I I, I was first became... Um, in AA, we have districts right after we have, we have the group and then the district and then the area and then the, uh, the general service conference. And when I first became, um, the, the 
the DCM or the district committee member who's uh, the cho- one that's chosen by all the groups to represent the district, I actually thought that I had been uh, given some special rights. And I was to find out, this was probably the biggest lesson I learned along this level, was that uh, in short order, uh, there were some things that were coming up on our um, agenda at the uh, assembly, and I thought that I could just speak for the district and do it this way and, and say it. And they, in fact, gave me some, <laughs> some exact wording to take to the assembly and present it. And it wasn't the way I wanted, but I did learn from the old-timers and other people who had been around AA a lot that I did not get to go to the assembly and say, well, here's what they told me I have to say. I don't agree with it. And then, then spout it off. I went through and I said, here's what this our district wishes to put forward and just put it out there and didn't make a comment good or bad for it. I just said, here's what our district wants. That was my first real lesson in how to be a representative of a, of a part of the fellowship. And I also learned this at the General Service Conference in AA when I was there, because I was sent there. It had to do with our uh, anonymity statement that is read in AA meetings. And uh, for years and years, there was no anonymity statement in AA per se. We always borrowed Al-Anon. And without permission, uh, for a long time. And so we went to the conference in 92. Um, I was sent there with this, uh, man, kind of a idea from our area. And here's what they wanted to do. They wanted to just borrow Al-Anon's, um, anonymity statement. And then on the bottom of the paper, just say with permission of Al-Anon. And, uh, that got into the literature committee where I was a part of that. And, um, we discussed this at length, and it was brought out that if we started doing this and saying with permission out, we were going to go down a bad road, and that we needed to bring something out of our own traditions that did it. And uh, and I, I saw right away that that was right, and we had to reword it, and we basically have what we have now. It's a blue card, that, a white and blue card that gets uh, can be set out on the tables for people to read, out of our anonymity statement. But then I came back to our area after I got back to New York and my one of the first things on the report was, here's what happened, and I yes, I voted against what we had said, but I saw the wisdom of this, and when they listened to everything that I reported back, they agreed. Because um, I was sent there at the General Service Conference in New York, I was sent there to be part of the group conscience of AA as a whole for the United States and Canada, I was not sent there to be just a locked-in, rigid senator for my area here in Montana, Area 40. Um, <clears throat> okay, I was now. I'd like to move over to uh, um, the the 12 and 12, and in this one, they start. Uh, Bill speaks a lot more. In, in tradition two in the uh, 12 and 12, which runs from page 132 to 138, and there's some specific points in here that, that he really covers the fact that uh, how we're supposed to look at ourselves when we're serving AA, and that it's a group that does speak. 
that it's only the group that speaks. Um, we definitely have what we call trusted servants, and that means that we are to um, trust them when if we do, if we do the proper job of electing them, then we know that we can trust these people to carry forth our stuff, and we do have trust in them. They also need to have trust in the group that elects them and be trustworthy. Uh, these were things that I learned from serving. But the, uh, <clears throat> the some of the big things that happen is is uh, that we got to make sure that we elect the best possible servants. That's something that Bill said a long time back, and and that's our job not to just sit around and not pay attention who's running and who's putting their name forward. Is elect the best possible servants to serve our fellowship because it is so important to serve the fellowship right because this message needs to be carried to all those who are still suffering. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the, the talks on page 134, when you get down to talking about committees, um, it's in the... Yes. Oh, somebody else just checked in. Welcome. Um... This is on page 134 of the 12 and 12, and it's in the very end of the second, of the first long paragraph there. And it says, the committee gives no spiritual advice, judges no one's conduct, issues no orders. Every one of them may be promptly eliminated at the next election if they try this. And so they make the belated discovery that they are really servants, not senators. And, uh, that was pointed out to me in that when I was a district committee member that I was just serving the district. I was not running it, and I was there to uh, do my best to help and to go around and visit the groups and do what I was supposed to do at the job. Um, and then it says there at the bottom of that page, it says, does AA have a real leadership? And most emphatically, the answer is yes. Notwithstanding the apparent lack of it, let's turn again to the deposed uh, founder and his friends. They're talking about the founder of a group. This man went to another town and started a group. Um, and um, ultimately, they divided into two classes. And this is what happens to a lot of old-timers. Uh, I'll have something more on that in a minute. Ultimately, they divided into two classes, known in AA slang as elder statesman and bleeding deacon. The elder statesman is the one who sees the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment, fortified by considerable experience, is sound, and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting developments. The bleeding beacon is the one who is just as surely convinced that the group cannot get along without him, who constantly connives for re-election to office, and who continues to be consumed with self-pity. A few hemorrhage so badly that drained of all AA spirit and principle, they get drunk. At times, the AA landscape seems to be littered with bleeding forms. Nearly every old-timer in our society has gone through this process in some degree. Happily, most of them survive and live to become elder statesmen. I had a the guy who was the district committee member for this district when I first came into AA. I had been around about 10 years, and um, at a workshop one weekend, Somebody asked him, why is it that some people become breathing deacons and others become elder statesmen? And his simple answer was beautiful, and it's so true. He says, we all become bleeding deacons, and some of us grow into being elder statesmen. And, uh, boy, I just thought that was so, so beautiful. And 
I find for myself that I am susceptible to slipping into the bleeding deacon form uh, time and again. Uh, it, it doesn't have to go on so long, and it's not near as bloody, and I can be brought back to my senses a lot quicker, uh, but I know that I'm susceptible to that. It isn't like I've been cured. Um, I know that God sure gives me a, a, a lot of help to try to resist doing that and to not quite go so far off the deep end. Um, a little farther down, it says the, um, the group inevitably, see, when, when soil perplexed, the group inevitably turns to them for advice. They become the voice of the group conscience. And in fact, these are the true voice of Alcoholics Anonymous. They do not drive by mandate, they lead by example. This is the experience which has led us to the conclusion that our group conscience, well advised by its elders, will be in the long run wiser than any single leader. And that is just so true. I've, I've watched, um, I'm just amazed at how that works in my own home group and how it has worked in our district, in our area, and at the General Service Conference in New York. And I, I have a friend in Australia who's in the service structure, just rotated as delegate, and I listened to him talk about it over there, and it's the very same. Uh, it seems that alcoholics are the same worldwide. And uh, what I have found is that if we can be the, the uh, elder statesman and, and be the trusted servant, that we're going to try our very best to do what's best for AA or for whatever fellowship we belong to. I, I keep saying AA because that's what I've been raised in. Um, but I see the I see the, the the real necessity of having well trusted servants, and it's so important. I have witnessed this time and time again in our districts, in our groups, in our area, and at the conference, where people jump on a bandwagon because somebody's got a lot of funny jokes and they're very they can be very popular. They get elected to serve in the fellowship, and and I. Like at our assemblies, whenever I have the opportunity to speak there uh, before elections, I remind them, I tell them that there are a lot of my, a lot of my best friends that I would not, I would not vote for for a position in the fellowship because I know they wouldn't do the job. But there are people who I don't particularly care for that much that I would vote for because I know they will show up and do the job. They will do their best for it. We're just our personalities just don't fit together. And that is something that so amazes me because that is not the way I was before I got to this fellowship and was led through these steps. And uh, now it, it works a lot better. I I do not want to even come close to trying to paint a picture that I that I've been a easygoing, get along with everybody kind of guy. I was I was an extremely violent alcoholic, and uh, I was the kind of guy that if I couldn't change your mind, I'd try to change your face. And uh, those things have been tempered, and uh, today, the most amazing thing with this this tradition has helped me, and the people in the program has helped me, was that I can be at a at any one of the the bigger meetings for fellowship uh, group conscience stuff, and we can have a, a spirited discussion, not heated, but a spirited discussion over the items, and we don't have to agree on them, but when it was all done, we could hug each other and go have ice cream. That's just that blew my mind the first time that that happened. That that can actually be, and the end result of that has been that 
<clears throat> I can seem to have a much more open mind when it comes to dealing with these things in the structure because there's a lot of varied experience out there in these things, and that is what is so important, and that's why this tradition is so critical and is so important for everything from the home group to the, to the say, the General Service Conference in New York or the uh, the GDA or uh, wherever, whatever the fellowship is. Uh, um, I know in, in Al-Anon, there's, uh, <clears throat> I've been to, um, where is their new office? I've, I've been there and seen that office too. And uh, and I know that every place it, it ends up, we can be there and we can have a good group conscience. And if we're all open-minded enough to listen, and hear what other people are saying, because I I I I'm raised in a I was raised out here in a very a remote community in Montana, and we don't have near the problems that there are in big cities. And I got to listen to people talk about the big city stuff, and I was able to hear it and listen. And also, some of them were able to hear and listen some of the problems that we deal with in the vast openness and the small uh, population that we have and how difficult it is to reach people. And um, these are all things that come out of this tradition, which help help push me to looking at it rather than just dismiss it and walk on my way. Um, I've got uh, the next thing. Let's see, we're running about half an hour here. I don't know if we're going to make two hours today. Um, there's a pamphlet that I, I put on the uh, possible reading list if anybody could get a hold of it. It's also available online. <clears throat> and it's pamphlet P16 called The AA Group, Where It All Begins. And this is a, an AA General Service Conference approved piece of literature, which means that uh, everybody at the conference agreed to the contents in here. That was at uh, <clears throat> the last time it was uh, reviewed. And in that pamphlet, there are some really, really important items back on page 26, it starts. <clears throat> and it starts with principles before personality. And in this, it, it talks about right at the top, it, it's, uh, it's got tradition too. And it talks about the principle of rotation. And that the, the tradition of rotation ensures that group tasks, like nearly everything else in AA, are passed around for all to share. Many groups have alternates to each trusted servant who can step into the service position if needed. That is another thing, that getting the group, the rest of the, a lot of the people in the group, by having this rotation, getting them involved in, in what the group is about and doing, I've, I've really watched it strengthen people's um, uh their program, actually, you know, by getting them involved and they become more a part of it, and then they start seeing, they start uh, understanding the traditions and getting, starting to understand some of the history of the traditions, and it's more than just showing up at a meeting to be fixed. It starts becoming, uh, it, it seems, what I've witnessed, that people become more involved with trying to carry this forth to other people who are hurting also. Um it says, to step out of an AA office you love can be hard. If you have been doing a good job, if you honestly don't see anyone else around willing, qualified, or with time to do it, and if your friends agree, it's especially tough. 
but it can be a real step forward in growth, a step through the humility that is, for some people, the spiritual essence of anonymity. And I have to say that that exactly, that happened to me within my own home group and within the district of having to step down, even when others said, well, there's nobody else stepping up, why don't you just keep doing it? And I had read this. I had read about this from my sponsor that asked me to read these things. And I knew that that was part of it, was uh, having to step down because nobody else will step up if I keep, if I stay in there. Nobody else will step up to the task and then we lose an opportunity to get new blood and new, new thoughts and new thinking um, coming out of our, whatever part of the fellowship we're serving. And I have to say that that was, uh, um, I wasn't sure that it was right at first, but after I did it and, and I talked to a lot of old-timers, I saw the wisdom of it. And uh, I think my my humility finally started to grow a little bit there. I had not a nodding acquaintance with humility when I came to AA. I knew about being humiliated, but boy, about humility, I did not understand a thing. And these simple tasks or exercises, if you, if you will, have really uh, helped me. Um, it says down at the bottom of page 26, it says, what is an informed AA group conscience? Now, here's where it gets really to the, to the crux of it. You know, because in the tradition, it says, there's but one ultimate authority, loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are the trusted servants they do not govern. When we get down to an informed group conscience, it makes such a difference. I have personally been involved in many group conscience decisions that were really bozo decisions. They were not good. Uh, we were not informed. We just ran with the heat of the moment and a few couple of ideas that were thrown out, and we we went that way, and it was it was terribly wrong. We got to clean it up. The nice thing about having an informed group conscience where everybody gets to find out about all the facts and then after we have all the facts and we have a good discussion where everybody has an opportunity to speak, then if we make the wrong decision, at least we're all in the same boat together and there's not a lot of finger point we can we can just turn around and clean it up a lot easier. <clears throat> the group conscience is a collective conscience of the group members membership and thus represents substantial unanimity on an issue before definitive action is taken. This is achieved by the group members the sharing and full information, individual points of view, and the practice of AA principles. To be fully informed requires a willingness to listen to minority opinions with an open mind. Uh, like I said before, that having an open mind was just, it took a long time to just have my mind crack open a little bit and let a little daylight in. I was very, very closed-minded. And today, because of this program and the people in it and what they've taught me and a higher power, um, I have just a little bit more open-mindedness, and I can hear what what um, people are saying. On sensitive issues, the group works slowly, discouraging formal motions until a clear sense of its collective view emerges. Placing principles before personalities, the membership is wary of dominant opinions. Its voice is heard when a well-informed group arrives at a decision. The result <clears throat> rests on more than a yes or no count. Precisely because it is a spiritual expression of the group conscience, 
the term informed group conscience implies that pertinent information has been studied and all views have been heard from group votes. And to me, this is what, this, this just makes tradition too, this is what really helps us keep tradition too alive and, and, and flourishing within our fellowship is by this, this part in this, this pamphlet, which so helps, uh, uh, my home group and the, whatever, whatever, uh, part of AA I'm, I'm serving or whatever fellowship you're serving, by these exercises, by doing these things, we're so much better off because we have the, we have the facts and we can make much, much better decisions. Um, next in this thing, it had, uh, the, the group in, the AA group inventory. And, uh, I'm happy to say that our group does an inventory about every other year. We don't do it once a year, but about every other year we do a, a group inventory and we use the, we use the, the stuff in this, the questions in this group inventory in this pamphlet. And, uh, it makes us take a good look at our group and what we are doing. Are we fulfilling our, our purpose? And are we serving AA to the best of our ability and staying within the traditions? And, uh, it really helps keep us on track. Um, the, the other thing I like is it says, uh, on page, uh, 28 talks about those AA group problems. <laughs> and I know your group's never had them. Mine just seems to have had a few over the years. And, uh, it's, this part is really important. Group problems are often evidence of a healthy, desirable diversity of opinion among the group members. They give us a chance, in the words of step 12, to practice these principles in all our affairs. Group problems may include such common AA questions as, what should the group do about members who return to drinking? How can we best boost lagging attendance at meetings? How can we get more people to help with group chores? Uh, what can we do about one member's anonymity break or another's attempts to attract the romantic interest of newcomers? How can we get out from under those old-timers who insist they know what's best for the group? And how can we get more of the old-timers to share their experience in resolving group dilemmas? This next part is so great. Uh, this is the last part of it on page 29. Almost every group problem can be solved through the process of an informed group conscience, AA principles, and our 12 traditions. Some groups find that their GSR, that's a group, rep, group service representative, or their DCM, district committee member, can be helpful. For all involved, a good sense of humor, cooling off periods, patience, courtesy, willingness to listen, and to wait, plus a sense of fairness and trust in a power greater than itself have been found far more effective than legalistic arguments or personal accusations. <clears throat> and I have, I, this has just come so true and I've witnessed it and I've been part of it. Uh, I've been not on the good part and I've, I've been on the good part, both. But in this, these cooling off periods and a good sense of humor, <clears throat> it's just like, you know, when we were kids and they told us that we needed to take a time out and go stand in the corner. Uh, We've done that in our group. We didn't go stand in the corner, but we've taken time out and we've actually just just uh, tabled it for a month and, and to go gather more information rather than make the decision, especially when it starts to get heated. Um, 
there's a saying around AA in our in our region, which is a seven state region, and that is that speed kills in AA. And when we rush into things and try to make too fast decisions without all the information and without weighing it out and really considering all the points of view, we've made some terrible mistakes. And uh, I know that this tradition is one of them that really has helped uh, has helped keep our group sol- uh, solvent. And I know that that's what's kept AA whole. Um, I've, I've gotten to witness it at every level um, in AA, and um, I was especially aware of it when I got to the group, uh, to the General Service Conference in New York, because I saw some very heated debates there. But there was also people there that called for timeouts, and we stopped, and we prayed, and, and like I say, one night we just we shut down for the whole night. You know, after that, we tabled that, that item. And I've seen those things work out. And uh, for me, the traditions are, are everything. That's what keeps AA going. Because uh, without them, <clears throat> I would I know that people like me or Bill W would have taken this thing and run it into the run it into the dirt, and this is what keeps keeps us all on track, and especially me. And these traditions, I'm I'm going to add this. <clears throat> they apply to my personal life all the way through, and especially this one. It isn't all my decisions, and it's not all my wife's decisions. We we have to discuss things and come to a, a decision and what we do is you know sometimes we have to take a break too and pray and and uh just take some take a time out and, and relax but this tradition absolutely is very viable and should have served extremely well um i've about hit all the real high points that i want to hit and i would sure be i've been hearing a lot of dinging on here i've I'm I'm hoping it isn't just a whole bunch of people signing off that more coming on. Uh I'm gonna um ask I'm gonna do a another uh star here and I'm gonna get some people back online to see if there are some questions or see how many are left. Hang on. Okay, I think you're all back on. I'm here. All right, it's really different to hear a voice now. Wow. Um, did you all hear what I... Uh, I'm open to, to questions. I don't know how many people are still left online. Uh, Bob, this is Bill Stewart. Uh, yeah. uh, and this kind of goes along with your experience, and I'd like your thoughts on this. Uh, we had we had a group that was not having any major problems, uh, but we decided to do a group inventory. And in order to to do that, um, we went at the business meeting where we were going to go over these questions that were are in the the uh, the pamphlet. We uh, had a uh, and I don't I can't remember it was an old timer, but I don't remember whether he was a GSR from another group or the district uh, committee member, but but the point I'm getting at was that when doing the group conscience, we had someone who didn't have a a home group dog in the fight to, to, to help moderate the discussion and help us identify the the questions, the, the, the true issues that might have been causing some uh, consternation rather than just 
the, the personalities who were, you know, getting heated. And I just wanted to have your thoughts on what you've seen that's been effective or not effective in terms of uh, actually doing a group conscience. Well, you bet. I, that is one of the best things um, possible is to for the group to uh, get to the point where they can have a, a good uh, inventory. But having a, a, uh, a neutral party, so to speak, chair of the meeting, somebody that can, can sit in there, especially if they've had a little bit of experience chairing things, that they don't weigh in on all the issues because then you just, then all of a sudden you're taking sides. But somebody that can sit there and keep order and keep it uh, back on to traditions and sometimes share a little bit, but most of the time it's the group members that need to share because if you've got a, uh, somebody up there that's starting to share on the different ideas and opinions other than to read a tradition or to read something right out of the book, but to start stating opinions, uh, the chairperson loses their, uh, what I have found, uh, this when I was a chair for the area, uh, they, you lose uh, the respect of the body because all of a sudden you're taking sides. So it's really important to have a, a, a neutral party that can keep it there, and then everybody respects that, that party as being neutral, and it really does help. One of the other things that we discovered in a group biz, a group inventory is that if we just spoke it out loud, there were some people who were rather timid and who would not uh, speak to the question. And uh, one of those, the 12 questions that are listed in the pamphlet, so what we did was we printed them up, or 13 there is. Uh, we printed the, we printed up sheets with the questions on there with a space to write um, underneath them. And everybody got to fill one of those out if they chose to and uh, put it in a box that was sealed. And uh, then we opened it up and we read them all together. And it was pretty amazing how some of the, uh, all of the members participated a little bit better when, when they didn't have to speak in front of everybody and, and maybe say some things that were um, could be a little controversial, and we found that to be pretty. That's it. Uh, Anybody else? This is Robert. Uh, uh, Robert. I got a question, Bob. What forms of uh, or methods are you familiar with for actually taking the group conscience? How is that actually conducted? Oh, well, one of the things that I that I find uh, a little bit disconcerting is when people call their business meeting a group conscious meeting. When it's it, and I found this to be a, a troublesome thing, and it kind of makes it makes the group conscious decision lose its validity. And at group business meeting, we discuss all kinds of things, you know, finances and this and that, and it's not really a group conscious decision on anything there. We're just discussing things. But when we have a, something that needs a group conscience vote, such as uh, whether we're going to have open or closed meetings or uh, different things that affect the group and how it presents itself, uh, those are the ones that we we let everybody know what the, what the thing is going to be, what the, what the, you know, if, it, if it's a, something that's brought up on the agenda, we don't, we don't make decisions that change our group um, at each meeting. If it comes up, like uh, where we send our money to, 
we have to meet, we have to discuss that three meetings, three months in a row before we actually do it. And changing our meetings from open to close or what time we're going to have them, what time of day they're going to be, that's another thing that has to go before the group three times, three months in a row. Because wait, quite a while back we found ourselves changing our meeting times and changing whether it was open or closed uh, so often and too often and they couldn't keep up with it on the meeting lists or in, you know, where we put it in the paper. And it was just, it was difficult for everybody. So we slowed it up uh, by doing that, which helped. And everybody gets informed and they have a chance for three months in a row to bring up anything that they feel is not good or that is good for that. But it's most important that everybody, every member of the home group member in that group has an opportunity to speak and to read or find out everything they can. And we try very hard to make all the uh, reference material available so they know where to find it. Uh, in Area 51 uh, in California, uh, I, I think it was developed up there some years ago, uh, and I became acquainted with it. I'd like to read you something, if I can, and get your... Uh, feedback on it, and it has to do with the group conscience. Can I do that, Bob? Sure. It says, there are two ways for a group to arrive at a group conscience. One is the competitive, and the other is the cooperative. In the competitive, you push your ideas across, take a vote, and the majority carries the decision. This leaves behind a disgruntled minority that feels that its troops are lost uh, and are lost in the decision. In the cooperative, we gather together around the idea of harmonious and mutual trust to become a group decision. This leaves no disgruntled minority. In order to gain this group conscience, we have worked out the following technique. The members are disciplined to the thought of a group decision rather than someone's personal triumph. This brings the group together in a receptive mood and the will to find agreement is present. There is a period of silence for the group to become receptive to the issue at hand before the group. This is not an argumentative spirit, but in the spirit of wanting a solution, not to arrive at a snap judgment. The chairperson goes around the room and asks each individual his or her views. The chairman expresses himself only after others have expressed themselves. The meeting is not thrown open for general discussion. That will allow the more vocal ones to set the debate. This method gives the least vocal an equal chance that there is a practical unanimity. There is a period of silence to see if a vote should be taken now. If there is not sufficient unanimity, the vote is postponed until the next meeting, that God may speak in the subconscious during sleep. If after this we are still not of a common mind, we take a majority vote if the decision is imperative. What do you think about that? Well, I, I really like that. It embodies a lot of the things that, that, uh, that I've been taught. Uh, number one, in, in farther down in the traditions, when we get into Tradition 12, and it talks about substantial unanimity, that is so much more important than just a majority vote. Because sometimes in a majority vote, when you just get, like, it's uh, 49 to 51, or, you know, within just a vote or two, when something is decided upon, 
that can, and Bill talked to this, that it can split a group. It can, it actually can spell the demise of a group because it was so, it was so close that there really wasn't a good decision which way to go. And so that begged for more, uh, information and to postpone it and discuss it more and find out more about it. <clears throat> and that's just on, you know, whether to go with two thirds or a majority. And sometimes things have to be done, but they don't have to be done that fast. I know, you know, it's been around a long time. But the, the other thing you talked about is how the meeting is conducted and that everybody has an opportunity to speak. And, uh, you know, asking each individual person there what their thought is, having the chairperson do that is one way. The other way that we do it is that Nobody gets to speak twice until everybody has had an opportunity to speak, and uh, and and I can see where that's a, that's a bit different than asking each one their opinion, um, but it allows everybody the opportunity to get up and speak. Nobody can speak twice, and and at our, like at our area assembly, you only get three minutes. That's all you're allotted, and then you're done, and then you have to wait till everybody else has had an opportunity to speak. And when the chairperson, and that's the importance of having a respected chairperson by them not weighing in, is, you know, they, they don't weigh into the topic other than to point out a tradition or something. But this, um, getting them to, uh, having the respect of the chairperson is really important. And when they ask, okay, is, is there any further discussion? Is there anybody who has not spoken to the, to the uh, item yet that would like to speak? And I realize that there are people who are um, they're just too timid to speak up at that point because of maybe a couple others were up first. And that's another part for the chairperson is not to pick on the uh, the most vocal person every time. Uh, make sure that it gets it gets spread around. But asking each individual one that's that's an, that'd be a that'd be an undertaking. I'll say that because I know at our assemblies. Uh, we've had we've had a hundred and some uh, voting members, and we're not that big a area. We don't have a big population, and uh, that could be a rather lengthy item. Uh, another one, um, <clears throat> when it comes to voting, I have found that ballot actually allows people to vote without having to raise their hand too, and sometimes you get a truer group uh, conscience vote that way. Because I know, like at the general service conference, I saw people that would just wait to see um, if the trustee raised their hand, and they vote the way the trustees did. And that you know, it's just people are influenced by who's raising their hand and who isn't. And sometimes a ballot can be a lot better. But trying everything we can, like like those guidelines that you just read, those are very good at trying to do the very best we can to make sure that we have the whole group involved, that everybody gets to weigh in and talk to the subject. And then make an informed decision. And really important is having substantial unanimity. And if it's too heated or too close, is it really that important that it has to be decided today and then not be postponed and then find out more information? Because it can really split. It can divide a group and, uh, boy, it can cause a collapse. I have seen two figures uh, use in reference to substantial unanimity, one is like 66% of two-thirds majority, and the other is a 75%. Uh, 
Can you speak to that? Well, in in uh, I know that from everything I've seen, it's usually up to the body to make that decision. Two thirds is fairly normal for most actions that are taken at the general service conference, and I know that in our area and in our districts, uh, that's what I've seen most often is two thirds. The one time that I know that it's really spoken to uh, in in the matter of three fourths is if the if they decide to ever change the traditions or the bylaws, that they will have to have a, a vote from every group in the world. And it's, it has to be a three-fourths majority. But a lot of people misread that. And they think, well, it'll never happen to get three-fourths. But what the, the way it actually read, the way it's written, it's everybody has to be notified and they have to be given, I think it's two or three months to respond and after they've responded, then um, three-fourths of those responding can carry the day. And that kind of scared me the first time I saw that because I thought three-fourths of those responding, sometimes when we send out stuff for people to to weigh in on, hardly anybody responds. So you can have a very small number be the three-fourths. But that's that's the one time that I know that three fourths is an absolute is in that instance if they want to change the traditions or the uh, um, the concepts or the or the uh, I just said it bylaw bylaws yeah the traditions yeah the traditions bylaws and that if they want to change those so you know that's the only time that I've ever seen. Three fourths. I've never actually seen it used in an AA or in AA, I should say, in the service structure. That three fourths was what was used. Thank you, sir. You bet. Anybody else? Bob, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, I wasn't sure if I was unmuted or not. Um, I have uh, uh, a question. Uh, I would like you to speak a little bit about um, uh, the uh, role of the minority opinion, uh, um, how uh, that affects uh, tradition two and the informed group conscience, and, and how uh, can a group best go about making sure that it's given uh, the view of attention to the minority opinion. Oh man, this is this is huge. I've seen uh, <clears throat> the minority opinion is one of the cherished things of Alcoholics Anonymous to make sure, absolutely ensure that the minority has a voice, and that is why you know when we we loosely follow uh, Robert's rules of orders, we don't follow them exactly. And precisely, and we, I know that sometimes we almost get into that, but if you really open it up to following Robert's rules of order precisely, you can almost, uh, um, filibuster, you know. So what we do is we loosely follow them and we allow the chair to have, uh, the option in some cases to just make common sense out of it. So when we get down to the, the, uh, the minority voice, after each vote, it's, it's, uh, those in opposition to which way the vote went, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the age or name. It's those that, that, that didn't prevail have an opportunity to speak. 
And so they get that chance to speak. And after they speak, then if somebody that was in the um, majority, I mean, after somebody gives their, their minority opinion, you know, and that's basically what you're listening to there, is when somebody that didn't prevail speaks and, and, and states something else, uh, sometimes then, then whoever voted in the majority, anybody that voted in the majority can say, I would like to reconsider my vote. And, and, uh, I know that you're a parliamentarian, Steve, and that when that is, when that is said, um, then all it needs is a second and then it goes, um, it goes to a vote. It's not discussed. And if, and if there's a majority <clears throat> that say, yeah, we'd like to reconsider, then it's kicked back open and for discussion. And, uh, then the whole thing is, is looked at again and after just, ample discussion and it's it's uh, it's voted on again after everybody's had a chance to voice and uh, unless somebody calls for the question and I have seen actually seen this happen where it voted and it was a pretty substantial it was a, a substantial majority and then somebody spoke uh, to the minority and said some things that we really didn't see before or hadn't considered that aspect and and uh, it wasn't voiced before, and we all changed, and it went the other way, which is amazing. And uh, I really believe in that minority voice, because if we exclude the minority voice, <clears throat> what we're doing is just putting our fingers in our ears and refusing to hear more information on the, on the things that we're voting on, which are vital to our fellowship. Does that help? It was helpful to me. Yes, it was. I was muted and uh, couldn't answer right away. Thank you. Oh. All right. Yeah, wow. I, I've seen it. I've seen it work many times. I've seen it, it go where the minority did carry, and then I've seen it where the minority did carry. They just voiced it, and they got the voices, and then it's over. The thing that you usually have to watch as a chairperson is that you keep it to the, the people who did not prevail in the vote. Because then all of a sudden everybody wants to start weighing in right away when they're they're just hearing what they've had to say. But once it's kicked back open for discussion, because everybody, a majority, voted to reconsider, then then everybody gets to weigh in and talk again. Bob, this is Ken from uh, the Buckhead Group in Georgia. Yeah, Ken. Uh, we just had a group conscience on a uh, particularly uh, contentious issue and uh, our fellowship while it normally has 60 or so at the meeting we always have a problem getting a very large number to attend and the people who are attending were all pretty passionate about the particular subject and it was uh, brought up that we were going to have a, a two-thirds majority on any approved actions that were being voted on and it didn't come, uh, we didn't get that. We, in fact, it was, uh, fell short of a majority. But my question is, after, if we didn't have the wisdom of this conversation or this call when we had our group conscience, I, in hindsight, having an outside uh, person chair would have been excellent because our, uh, chair of the thing was, uh, it, it, very invested in the, in the, uh, discussion. And I think at times that might have clouded, uh, some of the conscience of the group. And I was wondering about when it was, what was your thoughts on returning to visit an, a uh, issue 
that was rejected in group conscience, since we only had one group conscience on the subject, it wasn't an overwhelming for or against. It was almost a 51-49 kind of thing you were talking about. Any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. If it if it if it caused uh, if it caused an uproar in the group and it was split fifty fifty, obviously there's you know it's about half and half. Everybody you know something for something against. And when Bill spoke to this stuff, he actually said that this is where we need to definitely step back, take our time, get more information, and become well informed as a group before we make before we push this forward. And if it's still a case with the person might be better to walk away from it than to push it. Because like like Bill had said that you can split the group and it can just disintegrate the group. But the thing that I that I love the most that they talked about in here is is the informed group conscience. And that pamphlet the AA group. Because, like I said, I've, I've, I've been party to some really bad decisions, but when it's informed and everybody has an ample, ample opportunity to read it, and, and that's what we did on this last issue. They asked me if I would do it, and I went and I dug up stuff out of the, the big book, A Comes of Age, 12 and 12, and, and several different pieces of conference approved literature, and gave them the pages where to read it, and also recommended that they read the whole, the, the whole pamphlet or book, that uh, then everybody got to read all the material that was covering what we were discussing. And after they had all read that, we came back and we met, and it was amazing the difference in the uh, uh, the discussion and the lack, and, and the, there was not near the amount of uh, animosity in there. It was more uh, people listening and discussing and hearing each other's things, and and it really, it, it turned, it, it really made it uh, an item that we could discuss and, and get a vote on rather than having a split in the group. And that's, and that's one of the things that it, it, you know, if we just discuss something and it doesn't, uh, doesn't get passed right away and it's a split even up, there's still some things to be, uh, to look at there. Maybe for more information gathered. And uh, maybe ask if they want to reconsider it in with more information available. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Nashville. Yeah. This is Dan in Nashville. Can you please speak to the idea that through this tradition, the groups are being guided by God? Much the same way that we as individuals seek God's guidance in our daily meditation. Oh, well, yeah, the groups. Uh, that that's one of the key things of this of this whole tradition is that that it's you know we're God that it's God's uh, God being in there is what makes this thing work because without that then we just got human beings clashing because um, it it says that. Uh, um, a loving God or he may express himself in our group conscience. You know, and that, um, that's, that's one of the key things is that we stop and pray too. You know, we'll call time out. You know, we just say, excuse me, somebody will raise their hand and they'll be recognized by the chair. And they'll, and they'll say, I think what we need to do is uh, step back and say the serenity prayer here and take a breather. And, 
man, I saw that happen many times at the General Service Conference in New York. See it happen at our area, in our district, and in our home group. And that that brings God back into it. Uh, sometimes we get a little invested in it. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, boy, I can get right in it. And then some will say, well, what about God? And I'll go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, get called back to order. And really bringing it back around to this is, you know, we're making decisions here that are, and I love what it said in what I read earlier, um, you know, ethically maybe some things are right, but, boy, this is this is life and death. And whatever fellowship we're talking about, uh, making sure that this fellowship is there and that the group is a healthy atmosphere for people to show up and get well in. That is uh, that is a group responsibility. That's the strongest responsibility is that the group always tries to make sure that it's a healthy group and that it's there for those who are coming that are on their way and need to find a place and save their lives. And by keeping God involved, it's the only way it can happen because, uh, you know, well, everybody knows what our lives was like, what it was like without having that, uh, God in us the way we need it now. So I absolutely, yeah, that is something that always be brought up. This is Kim in Nashville again. And check out, there's been a history of, 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 of antipathy or animosity towards our own sobriety definition from the finish. In uh, late 1990, um, a question that went from central office to every known sexual anonymous group in the world. The uh, results were tabulated and published in the March 91 essay, Art Equivalent of the Grapevine. The results were as follows. 75% of the foreign groups overwhelmingly confirmed the sobriety definition. 18% were against it, and the remaining ballots did not, did not respond. Does that count to you? Because at this time, there was no service structure at the enjoyed today. Does that count to you as an informed group conscience? Well, uh, that's, boy, now you're getting into a whole different field. Uh, it, it, this is just my opinion. Um, when we have a group conscience, it's, it's the people that are there speaking and talking, and we all know that we've all gotten the same exact information. When you start doing um, polls, you know, such as to different states or different countries and like that, and then the, there's a, I know that we've done polls in AA. One of them is on our, uh, we have a, a pamphlet out on the membership pamphlet. And it's, and they, they ask all kinds of questions on there and, and different groups respond. But a, a company that can weigh in and figure out what the percentage is of how many people who answer and who many, how many don't, and that all has to weigh in there um, as to whether this is a valid decision and whether the fellowship as a whole, FA, uh, wants to do that by poll or do it on a vote by region or something. I that would be a that could be a very touchy, very touchy issue, and the results of it could be very touchy, depending upon how it was taken and how much time was given to respond and that everything was translated correctly going to the other countries. Um, these are these are all all items that would weigh into the validity of the uh, the actual percentages. Does that make sense at all? Yes. 
uh, has the right to go with whatever they they decide, as long as they don't affiliate with anything else. Bob, this is John Bunsen, Nashville. Hey, John. Hi, right, Hey, to piggyback Tim's question there uh, on another issue wrapped around that, uh, uh, my understanding of a group conscious is a uh, is a conscious of the of the members of that group that declare themselves members of that group and are attending the fitness meeting, uh, not just anybody who happens to be present. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times in SA, uh, business meetings tend to take place in the last 15 minutes of a, of a meeting and so forth and so on. And I personally don't go to another group's business meetings while I may sit in and listen. Uh, what is, uh, what is your sense on that, uh, the formality of that, I guess? Well, in the service manual, <coughs> excuse me, in the service manual, it talks about when it speaks about the groups or the AA group, and it says that the group is where a person, a, a member shows up, and this is where they have their one vote in AA, and that's where they vote, and this is where they also uh, make themselves available for service. Now, that's just what, that's what it says in the service manual. And, uh, and a lot of groups will have a, a group conscience meeting, a business meeting, and anybody can, you know, anybody who's attending there can weigh in on the issue, but only the group members can vote. And uh, now that's that's the way we do ours. And like I say, you know, it's pretty wide open. You can do, every group can do what they choose, but um, as far as our the group pamphlet goes on who votes and who doesn't or how to become a group member, uh, that's all right in that pamphlet. And uh, I know that this has been discussed many times, but I know in our group, nobody but group members... Um, vote. But anybody can have a say-so if they're setting in on it. Uh, we just try to limit it so it doesn't get overwhelmed by, you know, a whole bunch of people. And that's where a good chairperson is vital. But, um, you know, having the having the vote um, just to the members is would be extremely important because I know now this is, this is going back in our history some in AA, but I know that there were a lot of times in, in what, a long time back where you get some old timers, which we would call probably nowadays the bleeding deacons, that would gather together and go from group to group and carry the vote in each group in a in a given area, you know, a city or something. And uh, you know that was kind of some of the old ways. And slowly those have been weeded out, mostly. And uh, to me, it's just uh, for me. Um, I know how our group operates and what we have voted upon and what we do, but each group has the right to be wrong and to decide how they're going to handle it. And I know that our our group meetings are are meetings that we make available to people to come there to get well. Um, it's chaired by a member of our home group who knows how to chair, and the other members of the group back them up on that. <laughs> and uh, we make everybody feel welcome, but we have a you know, on our closed meetings, it's for alcoholics, and uh, we just we just go down the line, and it's worked really well. We only we only use literature that's uh, conference approved, and uh, in fact, in our group, we only use the big book and the twelve and twelve. But every group has the right to make their own uh, their own decisions. But I know that a lot of times, groups are not very. Um, 
well-informed on the history of AA and the traditions and the structure of the service. And so it's pretty much uh, the wild bunch running it. And uh, you get a lot of people coming in there trying to vote in your group that really don't have a vote there. And that's up to the that's up to the home group. There are remedies to it, but the group has to make that decision. I'm not going to say that people can't do that. That's that would be totally wrong on my part because every group has the right to uh, choose what they do. I know that a business meeting in our in our group it happens on the third Tuesday of every month, and it happens right after the main meeting. And we had to limit ourselves to an hour and a half for our business meeting because we get too involved. And so we had to make sure that everybody shuts up in an hour and a half so we can go home. And we have uh, strong participation. That help at all, John? Yes, it does, Bob. I appreciate your comments. They just... Finally, somebody kind of thing happened here in Nashville, and uh, just did have uh, have your uh, experience back to help on the issue. Thank you. You bet. Anybody else? Uh, yeah, this is more of a comment. Uh, but when you were talking about how the, the to chair one of these group conscience meetings, uh, uh, SA has some experience with this. Uh, in the way that uh, the literature committee uh, uh, conducts its business. And I don't know if Jim is on this conference call or not, uh, but um, it might be worth asking asking uh, uh, him to uh, uh, put put something out that's that's easily accessible either in the essay or whatever on on what they have found that works because if you can imagine trying to generate uh, new literature by committee on phone conference uh, and uh, and that that particular committee has settled on a way to keep uh, principles well ahead of personalities and make sure that everyone gets heard. So uh, SA does have some experience in that. Uh, that that might be helpful and, and might be worth getting out to share with others. Yeah, I know that uh, <clears throat> chairing a meeting, I was, and this is a piece of experience that was so valuable to me, I was elected as the area chair for Area 40, Montana, uh, to, to uh, which, you know, includes all of Montana. And we meet up there, and there's about 130-some-odd people in that meeting, uh, mostly GS, the group representatives and then also committee members and others that just attend. And when I first started chairing that, I was going by what I had seen in the years that I had been attending the assembly, going off of what they did. And it was it was pretty much a rodeo, I'll tell you, because uh, the chairperson was up there just calling on whoever, and they spoke however long they wanted and how often they wanted. And... And the chair also jumped into the debate all the time. So I was up there at my first assembly that I was chairing, and I was I was jumping in there, and I was doing all this stuff, and here's this guy sitting down in front of me. He was dad, I happen to know, that's in AA. And this guy raises his hand, and I call on him, and he says, you know, uh, he says, 
according to Robert's rules of order, you're not supposed to be saying anything other than maintaining order in, in, uh, in this meeting. And I just said, well, thank you very much for your participation. And I was pretty hot about it. And so then when we took a break, and I grabbed my Robert's Rules of Order book, and I ran off the side and I read it. <clears throat> and, boy, I tell you what, I had to come back and tell him he was so right and I was not right and that I would endeavor to do the best that I could from there on. And I have to tell you, uh, then I was wrong. And, and when I read that, in what our area also has to say, we've discussed this many times, but our area chair now stays completely out of all discussions. And it used to be that you could step down from the from the podium and go off to a side mic and then voice your opinion, but we found that to be counterproductive. You're just better off you're just one person, and you need to keep you need to keep the, the uh, respect of the chair going. And by not participating, it was just amazing. When I stopped participating in the debate, how much more order came to the meeting? And then over the years, we voted. You know, everybody only gets to speak once until everybody's had a chance, and we limit the amount of time that you can speak. And the chair keeps you on topic if you start straying from the topic and loosely following the Roberts Rules of Orders. And it was amazing how much that changed our area assembly from this one guy that just, you know, he, he had the courage to just step up and say it. And I got to tell you, he turned our area around. The shame is he had about four years sobriety, and probably about six years later, he died out behind an old drugstore down in Nevada from an overdose. And uh, But he changed our area. He was a... It's an absolute incremental part in the change of our area and how things were done, and business gets done so much better and uh, without so much heated debate, and it, it just is really smoothed out. And, man, I didn't like saying I was wrong. I'll have to tell you that. Right in front of about 130-some people. Any other questions? Yes, this is uh, Robert, and I got a question, a little bit off the subject, but in our reading tonight, in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, on page 100, uh, Bill writes that uh, in the last paragraph on the page, it says I was bowled over through a few twinges of conscience until I saw how really ethical Charlie's proposal was. There was nothing wrong, whatever, with becoming a lay therapist. I thought of Lois coming home exhausted from the department store each day, only to cook a supper for a houseful of drunks who were not paying board. I thought of a large sum of money I still owed my Wall Street creditors. And for some reason, I never read that sentence before. And I didn't know that Bill owed Wall Street creditors a bunch of money you know anything about that? Does anybody know anything about that? Boy, I don't know about how much he owed creditors, but I can just imagine, after sobering up for a short period, um, that you could sure owe a lot. I know <clears throat> I owed a lot of people, and um, I even thought I was going to negotiate with the IRS, and uh, they just told me what I was going to do. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I have no idea how much he owed them, but <clears throat> the fact that he owed, yeah, that was that was uh, a given. But um, how much, I don't know. Anybody else? Thank you. 
that is one of the rude awakenings of <clears throat> getting well is finding out just how much you do owe. And, uh, man, I owe the next wife. I owe the IRS. I owe, man, I had, <clears throat> in fact, I've done a little creative financing just before I went into treatment. It's where you, you don't sign the checks and you mail them and all the kinds of things that give you about 30 days running. And then when I got out of treatment, I had to catch up with everything and make amends. Uh, this is Robert again, and on a different note, I'll just say that in my experience with being involved in the service structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's where I learned to fight fair, that I realized that it didn't have to prevail. It used to be before I get into recovery, win at all costs. And when I... Um, at any rate, uh, in going to the uh, to the assemblies and such, and representing my group, I represented the group's opinion, and what I realized I needed to do is to suit suit up and show up and be my best self. Say what I meant. Mean what, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean. And I didn't have to prevail. And I figured that uh, I learned that God's will would show up in the group conscience somehow. And uh, keeping in mind always that you know, what we're doing is really about life and God. And if the group doesn't survive, neither am I. Exactly. <laughs> I always say that you know, through the service structures where I learned how to, to play in the sandbox with all the other kids. And uh, uh, one of the other things that I learned very much, and this is very important for my group and my, my area and for every place that I serve, is to not pout after I didn't prevail. You know, because uh, the side I voted on didn't prevail. Then I used to kind of pout about it, and then I'd, I'd always, I was like trying to gather the army to go back and assault them again or something. And uh, and there was times that I I learned in the service structure that if if I wasn't on the prevailing side and and I was on the like the one third um, and it passed, then I just need to move on and not not be sitting around grousing about it and making all kinds of trouble. But if I saw a legitimate thing that was absolutely that wasn't discussed and that might change the vote or whatever, then it was I was I was bound to let that be known, but I, there's a, a way to do that rather than just, you know, screaming and hollering in the back of the room or something. You know, say, well, here's some information that might might help and put it forth. But learning how to play that with the rest of the kids, that, that has been so good for me. And I think that's what this tradition, tradition too, in the, in the real studying of it and looking at the history of it, this is where we really learn how to do this stuff, and it's it's God guiding all of us. And uh, sometimes I I think that He allowed us to just have our own free will and make some good mistakes so that we we could learn maybe a little quicker. I know I sure made my share of them. Anybody else? Bob, thank you so much. This has been excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Bob.
every well, every participated. I, I just love this. I man, I have tried to have traditions workshops, and, and a lot of times it's very difficult to get anybody to attend. And uh, I love the traditions. I love hearing about them and listening to some of the guys like Tom High and and uh, some of the other ones that I've known for years. Uh, when they talk about it, I just I just admire it so much. And these traditions are so God given. It's I mean, a power monger, egomaniac like Bill developing these—that's a miracle. Just a flat-out miracle. And uh, I, I just appreciate them so much. I think my wife says it really good. I think it was one of her old sponsors that that God uses uh, crooked pencils to draw straight lines. I love that. Well, thank you guys, all of you. I appreciate it. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.